Welcome to Zooming In, a show about the lives and feelings of regular people who are like you and me, people seeking connection and love, people who are just muddling along trying to be human. I'm your host, Sison Kim Simang. Please note this episode references sensitive information about miscarriage and pregnancy loss. I'm Valerie Wayland. I'm Nigerian-American, and I would describe myself as a storyteller, a healer, a mother, a lover of the seen and unseen. Like many immigrant children, Valerie grew up in two distinct worlds. There was the world inside her house, which was a tightly run ship with her Nigerian mother as captain. And then there was the world outside her house in Inglewood, California, a predominantly African-American community that had its share of problems in the late 1990s. Um, I was born in Inglewood, California, so um, I usually just tell people it's in L.A., and usually they'll repeat back one of the rap songs that yells out, Inglewood. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Is that near Compton? Maybe 20 minutes from Compton. Um, but my story in Inglewood was a little different because I have Nigerian parents. So... I think a lot of first-gen American kids can relate to the fact that your reality is sort of balancing this duality of African traditions and Western ideologies. So my parents were very strict. Um, so I didn't, even though the rap song um, paints a different picture, it's quite, mine was a very sheltered and quiet life. One thing I have a vivid memory of is that there were very few trees um, and lots of buildings and pain was always very present in the collective narrative. Um, but so was joy. It was sort of the response to pain was to lean into joy. Valerie's mom was a proud African woman and a typical African mom in lots of ways. She had really, really, really high expectations for her kids, especially her daughter, whose world was open to infinitely more opportunities than hers had been when she was a young woman growing up in Nigeria. My parents divorced before I was born, so they were in an arranged marriage. Um, they're both Nigerian and they're both Igbo. They come from the same tribe, but very different perspectives on life. My dad is a very proud Igbo man. I mean, when he would pick me up from school, he'd turn the African music up as loud as he could and drive up, and everyone knew I was the kid with the Nigerian dad. Um, my mom, on the other hand, um, began kind of creating or co-creating her own reality that um, centered women empowerment. You know, um, she found her voice in America, and that really conflicted with her reality back home in Nigeria. Um, so in my household, the narrative was to make straight A's. <laughs> Valerie's mom is really strict. She expects straight A's and good behavior. But it's not because she's traditional. It's because she's strategic. She knows the challenges Valerie is going to have to face as a young black woman in America. And she's not going to take any chances on Valerie's future. She wants her daughter to be a strong, independent woman like she's had to be. For her, she wanted me to thrive in American culture. So that meant I needed to present myself in a way that was palatable um, as a black woman um, so that I could enter into doors that were sometimes difficult to enter into. Um, so even the way that I speak was shaped by my mom. 
she wanted, she, I had four options. And I think this is like the one that we always joke about in African culture is like finance or accountant, lawyer, doctor. doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, hold on. Take out so, finance, put in engineer. Exactly. Yes. Especially <laughs> Nigerians. And that's the story that she had for me because she want, she didn't want me to struggle like she did. You know, my mom um, has been recently sharing her stories of her childhood. And she, I asked her what her greatest, you know, what her greatest aspiration was. And she said just to have food to eat. And I didn't know that this whole time, you know, that that was what drove my mom to push me to really like get a good job and you know make a lot of money and have my own stuff so that that I wouldn't have to struggle the way that she did um how amazing to have a mom for whom um that's her goal for you and that she doesn't burden you with that knowledge Mm. I think sometimes Mm we are like why didn't she tell me why didn't the but I think um there's a lot to be said for um a sort of generation of African moms that um, pushed us without make, without centering themselves. Mm. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Mm. I didn't think about that. Um, but I completely agree that if she would have passed on her burden to me, I might have resented her. Yeah, there's it. a heaviness that as a kid you don't need. Mm. And you, it's, you can resent your parents for the same reason that everyone resents them which is mm-hmm. they're so pushing me they're pushing mm-hmm. me, right mm-hmm. that's a different thing mm-hmm. from knowing that I have to do this because she didn't have food to eat yeah that's you know in talking to other um African friends it's like having that kind of responsibility at a young age is too much it's a lot yeah it's a lot mm-hmm. good for her Valerie's athletic like she's really tall and naturally this led her to basketball Her mom recognized that her athletic ability could open up doors. And so with her support, Valerie walked straight through. I played on the basketball team. And so I had um, American State Colleges recruiting me. So from 15, I was having um, colleges come and um, see my games and then invite me to stay on campus. So So you were good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm really tall. So it helps to be really tall. in America. Uh, so I ended up getting a full scholarship to Loyola Marymount University. That was my plan after um, high school was just to continue to fulfill the path that was painted for me by my mother. Valerie went to college with the intention of fulfilling her mom's academic goals. She had a basketball scholarship and so on top of getting good grades, she had to train for an intensely competitive league. It was really hard. My days would look like waking up at five in the morning, going to training, um, being pushed hard, and then having to go to class. Um, And I majored in finance and business management and focusing on trying to excel academically while being under the pressure of like, I could lose my scholarship because it's not guaranteed every year. They can take it from you if you're not meeting their expectations. My first year, I wanted to leave. And I, my mom was like the one, my rock, you know, pushing me to tell me like, you can overcome this, you can overcome it. You just have to be patient and just, you know, it'll get better. Valerie was patient and she did overcome it. But as soon as she graduated from college, she put the basketball down indefinitely. I was done with basketball. I was done with people controlling my life because I didn't have a life. You know, it was training, school, traveling to games. 
um, and then having to come back and make up for missed classes. And I just wanted to have a normal life. The global financial crisis hit just after Valerie graduated. It was the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression, and it took her about six months to find a job. Finally, she found a role, and it was with a big company. And then I ended up landing a job, and I, um, for Liberty Mutual, an insurance company. So Valerie's mom is happy. All her hard work keeping Valerie on the straight and narrow is paying off. Valerie successfully finished university, and she's entering employment with a large Fortune 500 company. The job was offered in, um, like, right outside of San Francisco. So I went to Chicago for training, and I had the time of my life. I saw snow for the first time. I didn't like sitting in a cubicle, but I enjoyed the movement and the travel and experiencing the new experiences. Um, and then I ended up, uh, yeah, moving to, like, San Francisco. There is a long rivalry between San Francisco and L.A. So L.A. is known for Hollywood, for beautiful people, for being fast-paced, a place where people invest a lot in keeping up appearances. San Francisco, on the other hand, is known for its dot-com booms, for Facebook and Google, for its Pride Festival. It kind of embraces a softer capitalism. It's known for hippies. It's full of what Valerie calls free thinkers. The San Francisco vibe definitely started to have its effect on how Valerie thought about herself. Being in San Francisco changed my perspective on life because I was surrounded by all of these free thinkers, um, people who enjoyed going against the grain. I found that to be so exciting. Um, and I began to um, wonder, like, who could I be beyond um, this image that I felt like I needed to be to be whole? Okay, so Valerie is in San Francisco, she's working at this big company, and she's living the life that her mom has always planned for her. But San Francisco is also starting to change her. She's learning things about herself that aren't exactly on her mother's curriculum. Valerie realized that she was trying to live up to this ideal that wasn't making her very happy. She was dressing a certain way, she was presenting in the office like this fantastic corporate employee, but a lot of it was just an act. Yeah, I definitely look quite different. I mean, how I moved, the energy that I was spreading across, and um, it just was different because I, I didn't know myself. I was still living in my mother's dream. I was very corporate. Um, I was always pushing, you know, the boundaries. I was always questioning things. So I would ask my manager, like, do we have to do this or is there another option? So I was always like sort of teetering around, like, could I do these? these things differently, but I didn't know who I really was because I never, I never asked myself that. The emptiness was growing and growing, but she had this instinct to please her parents and to please her mom in particular. She might have gone on this way, unhappy, but full of duty. But then she met this guy called Jeff. He was her roommate in San Francisco, and he just had this approach to life that made her question everything. Oh, yes. My um, roommate, Jeff, um, he's from Thailand, um, and he's also, he's not really first-gen like me because he was born in Thailand, but he was in America long enough to basically be like a first-gen kid. But when we became roommates, I used to look at Jeff, and he was always, his, his head was in the, the air. You know, he was always dreaming, and I just didn't know what that was like. And just being around him um, inspired me. And I remember we were sitting down, I'm like, I don't like my job. He said, okay, but then what do you like? 
And I said, I don't know. I actually don't know what I like. I don't know who I am. It was very weird, like having that realization. And um, yeah, being around him definitely sparked what, like um, that journey of like trying out new things. He actually wanted to become a monk. I remember him saying that he wanted to go back to Thailand and shave his hair off and become a monk. So She wasn't exactly going to shave her head and become a monk, but Valerie realized that she had to do something to shake off the constant feeling of obligation she was carrying around with her. She started thinking about what else she might do for a job, something that would excite her. She remembered how much she had loved basketball before it became like a job in college. And so she thought maybe she should try sports management. She was still really driven. And if she was going to be happy, then damn it, she was going to do it in high gear. Yeah, I took on two um, internships, so sports management and sports marketing, um, while having my full-time job. And the sports management job internship was really interesting because it was for a semi-pro men's basketball team in San Francisco. So part of that role was to prepare on game days, so invite the umpires in. And that's when things really began to change because one of the umpires like, came in, and I'm a very talkative person, so I was saying, oh, I'm trying to find myself, trying to figure out what I love. And he, his interaction was quite different from others that he was leaning in. He looked very curious and was very inquisitive. And um, after the game, I asked if he could be my mentor. Valerie had just asked a 70-year-old white guy who she had just met to be her mentor. And he said yes. It's important to remember here that Valerie didn't have a lot of experience with random white people. She grew up in an all-Black and Latino neighborhood. He was elated. He was like, of course, he was super happy to help, like, support me. For some reason, though, she felt confident enough and safe enough to reach out to this guy. It was the first time she had ever done something like this, and her mentor really got her. He knew what she was looking for, even if she didn't quite know it herself. He suggested using my athleticism to see the world and then see who I could be through that. And I hadn't touched a basketball in three years, so I really doubted that this was a viable option for me. <laughs> but I trusted him, and he got me into a private basketball club that you can only get into in San Francisco by knowing someone. So he had a lot of contacts. And it was during one of the games that someone asked if I was, like, an international, like, basketball player, and I said no. And then that's when I knew, like, you know, this is this is possible. Um, my mentor... Um, helped create like game film for me and he sent it out to contacts he had here in WA. Some teams offer to, well all of the teams except for one offer to pay me but my proposal is that I wanted to be able to work because it wasn't about playing basketball for me. It was about like connecting. The only team that agreed was the one that wasn't going to pay me. So I turned down money for exploration um, and, yeah, I signed with uh, the Southwest Slammers in the state um, basketball league here, so semi-pro. So this plan starts to form, mainly because, as Valerie says, that's what feeling like your soul is dwindling in a cubicle will do to you. She's decided that she's going to move literally across the world to play for a basketball team in small-town Western Australia for zero pay. She's 24, and she's headed to Bunbury to play for the Southwest Slammers. It's exciting and kind of wild, but she also knows that this is not the career path that her mom had mapped out for her at all. I told my mom, like, the day before I was, like, packing up my stuff to drive back to L.A. 
so that she couldn't stop me from going. And I think she was just like worried that I was venturing into a path that wasn't very safe. Um, but I don't think my mom realized how much of a mirror I am of who she was when she moved to America and no one else was encouraging her to do so. So it's really just following in my mom's footsteps. Having just had one of the hardest conversations she had ever had in her life, Valerie got on a plane to start a new life. She felt like she was walking away from everything she had ever known, and it kind of felt amazing. She decided she was going to embrace everything. So the first few weeks looked like landing in Australia and like hearing these strong Australian accents and like, whoa, I was trying to pinch myself. Like this feels so surreal. And driving from Perth to Bunbury, for me, I was just like, look at the trees, you know, because I never saw so many trees so close together like that. Um, I thought the landscape in Bunbury and just WA in general was just stunning. So I was always you know, every day I would just wake up and just feel so excited about life. Bunbury was so much slower than L.A. There was no traffic. The vibe was completely chill and nature just dwarfed everybody. Valerie felt alive and she was back playing basketball, a passion she had given up for years. Um, so we would train twice a week for two hours. I was happy with that because I came from America where you were training every day and it was grueling. It was crazy. I enjoyed it. I was like, yeah, this is fun. Um, and I realized that I hadn't really forgotten the skills that I had attained through college, you know, like the muscle memory. I just felt like I was back to where I was, like as soon as I got into training. While Bunbury was amazing in lots of ways, there was also a super weird dating scene. Valerie had some terrible experiences with online dating when she first got here. Remember, she was a six foot one black American woman living in regional WA. But... Three years after arriving in Australia, she found a match. On the surface, they were really different. He wasn't into basketball, like a lot of the guys at home. And he wasn't into footy either, the way a lot of Aussie guys she met were. He was into surfing, that iconic Australian pastime. He's a surfer. Like, he loves, he loves the ocean. He loves nature. Yeah, we just gelled perfectly. Um, even though our stories are very different, we just connected Deep level. This love story was the next chapter in the book that Valerie was writing for herself. They dated for a couple of years, then they got married. Valerie's mom and her stepdad came for the wedding. We got married in um, Chenggu in 2019, and um, it was my parents' first time going to Bali, which was hilarious. <laughs> so they both came. Yeah, um, and I remember um, when they got to the villa. My mom was like, I don't understand, like, why you chose this place. <laughs> she said, this is just like Nigeria because it's so, like, busy. She was like, you could have got married in Nigeria. Yeah, we could have done a big party for you in Lagos. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was really funny. Um, but, yeah, they ended up really loving Chingu. And um, also it was their opportunity to, to see who I have become because I was very different from what they remembered when I left. By this time, Valerie had hung up the basketball jersey again, and she was working in community engagement. Valerie says that this is her true passion. She felt fulfilled professionally, and although she had deviated so much from her mom's plan, there was still one part of it that resonated with her. She wanted to have a baby. In fact, 
She had always wanted to have a baby. It was something that she had dreamed about. My narrative was excel academically, get a good job, and get married, and then have kids. So I was never going to have kids without getting married first. Um, So that's why I waited so long, and that's probably why I was pushing it so much. Yeah. It wasn't long after the wedding that Valerie found out she was pregnant. I, like, recorded it. I remember, like, going up to my husband, like, I'm pregnant. And, you know, just, like, he started crying. And it was such an emotional moment for us. We were like, okay, like, we're going to be parents together, you know. like. Valerie was elated. She had settled in a new country. She had found a job she loved. She had met the love of her life. She was starting her own family. It felt like the perfect next step. She imagined passing on the wisdom of her mom onto her own child, an extension of herself. And although she was far away from home, she had become really close with some of the women she was working with, who were mothers themselves. They were excited for her. They showered her with love. It was exactly what she needed. A few months into the pregnancy, Valerie went for a checkup. It was just a routine checkup. She thought everything was okay. I was having a hard time finding a doctor that I felt like was compassionate. Um, I felt like they were really dismissive, and it was really hard for me because I was, you know, I'm in Australia, not by myself, but basically. um, Yeah, in terms of not having your mom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was really looking for someone who was going to be patient and really walk me through it. Um, So I was actually looking for new doctors, and I'd gone and seen one doctor in particular, and it was during that appointment she was asking me about, you know, how my pregnancy is going. And I said, it's great. Like, I don't have morning sickness anymore. And as I continued to explain things, that's when she told me that she thought I was having a miscarriage. If this feels sudden, it's because it was. Just like that, Valerie's dream was shattered. She was devastated. And she wanted her mom. But this was 2020, and you can probably guess what happens next. It was a horrible experience. Like, when it happened, it was just... I felt like I was dying. When I had my miscarriage, my mom was trying to book a flight for me to fly home. And then, you know, lockdown happened. So, like, that just made it, like, it just made it harder for me. It wasn't just the loss of her baby that Valerie was grieving. The whole experience made her feel as though she had lost her sense of herself. All of her hard work in the past few years, finding herself in Australia, being away from her family and her life back in America, it all felt like it had come undone. I think um, going through the worst experience of my life um, literally broke any sense of self that I had, any beliefs that I had. And I always, I talk, I tend to talk about like this space between that, that space, that unknown. And sitting in that, that's when I began to realize that this brokenness was needed for me to really experience something deeper. Even just being pregnant, I felt myself changing. I was experiencing this level of love that I never knew before. Love for yourself? Love for this baby? Love for this baby. And love for my baby. And then losing that. 
it carved um, like this, like it just carved into my soul. And then I began to discover love for myself. It's still hard for Valerie to talk about the miscarriage. It may always be. But she feels like it's important not to stay quiet. She's leaning into the pain. I think that all of the experiences of pain um, all throughout my life, starting from when I was a little kid and my parents suffered, you know, they weren't together. And that was my first heartbreak. And it was just the culmination of these experiences that reminded me of my deep trauma. Um, and really, I'm, I would consider myself to be a deep thinker. So I, I shared before that I enjoy my own company. So I tend to ponder about life and purpose a lot. And I think doing that gave space for me to really look at this soul-crushing pain with a different lens. So you didn't, um, you didn't uh, look away from it? I wanted to initially. I think that's the first response, right? Look away, it's too hard. And want to just give up or run from it. But doing that only made it harder. Um, so I knew that I had to actually just sit with it without trying to create a solution or trying to put a Band-Aid over it. I remember when I did have the miscarriage and I was telling my mom that I was just in so much pain. Mm. And she was trying to stop me from being with it. Mm. And I had to tell them that I needed a break from them. Mm. Because, like, I need to give my my safe space to cry. And that's something that I never saw growing up. So, um... It's alive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never saw my... I think I saw my mom cry once. She didn't always know it, but Valerie is realizing that she is just as strong as her mom has always been. Unlike her mom, though, Valerie can cry. Her mom had to be stoic. That was her way of surviving. But Valerie shows her strength in a different way. She's able to fall apart, knowing that she'll be able to put herself back together. She embraces all of who she is. I believe that healing is dynamic, um, and that some days are full of sunshine and, and rainbows, and some days are full of crashing waves. Um, but I believe that it's important to embrace both. So they both hold purpose and meaning in our lives. Because um, I know a lot of people ask me, is there an end to the healing? And I can say at this point that I think we're always healing and becoming. Um, and if we just let go of trying to control that journey, we can actually experience true freedom. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories on Wajak Noongar Buja in Western Australia with generous funding from Lottery West. The Centre for Stories believes in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Special thanks to our storyteller for this episode, Valerie. And to our production team, executive producer, Kara Jensen-McKinnon, audio engineer, Mason Velios, scripting and interviewing by Sison Kim Simang and Claudia Mancini. Head to centerforstories.com to listen to more stories or to make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.